You are listening to a sermon from MCA Church. To learn more about our community, head online to mcachurch.ca. Thanks. Thanks, Danielle. Well, good morning, Mission Creek Alliance Church. Morning, Mission Creek Alliance Church. There you go. Thanks, right? We didn't understand you. Yeah, right. You're, you, just, you, just, you just boasted that your parents are from Scotland. Don't get cheeky. So lovely to be together. Lovely to be together face to face. I think we've done this through the camera a few times, but thanks again for the kind invitation and welcome, Keith. And uh, good to just be in, uh, in each other's company and to be able to enjoy some beautiful, beautifully led worship and to look into God's Word and to be nourished. I went to a, I went to a high school where every, every single morning we had assembly, and at every single assembly we, we uh, said the Lord's Prayer. Now, did anybody else have that experience? Did some of you folks? Yeah, okay, quite a few of you. So the Lord's Prayer, it was sort of a staple of Western education for a while. Not anymore, but it used to be. So I did a little bit of math, and I figured out I've said the Lord's Prayer thousands of times. But here's the thing. Even though I said it every single day at school, I said it, but I don't, to, you know, I don't think I ever really prayed it. Because there's a difference between saying the Lord's Prayer and praying the Lord's Prayer. I think it's a beautiful, powerful, almost explosive little prayer that is packed with truth and grace for us. But I think we've become so familiar with it, many of us at least, that it has lost its ability to stir us or provoke us because we've just become so used to the words. We know where it comes from, where it goes, and it's the Lord's Prayer. So, it but wow, if you really encounter it for the way Jesus, I think, intends it to be received, uh, then buckle up, because there's something in here that ought to, uh, ought to change us, stir us. The context of the prayer is the Sermon on the Mount. Now, that's really important, because the Sermon on the Mount is this brilliant, challenging, <clears throat> disorienting invitation to experience God and God's rule in a completely new way that the people who were hearing it just weren't used to. They did not see this coming. Jesus was a young rabbi, was um, gathering a little, a little following, a little bit of a um, reputation even. And this is His first main uh, exposition of teaching that we're given in the Gospels, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount. And it's extraordinary. I think the people who were there were maybe expecting, you know, a nice little break from their normal work as a blacksmith or a potter or a farmer. Take a little break, get a few stories up the hill with the young rabbi. And what they encountered was, was cosmos changing. Extraordinary. He starts off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those of you who are hanging on by a thread. 
Yours is the kingdom of God. Now, right there, they wouldn't have known what to do with that, because normally the people who were blessed were the ones who were around or near the temple, the most esteemed, the, the richest, those with the most education, those who had access to the holy work of the Levites. Those were the blessed ones. Everyone else is just sort of common. Don't really get much of a blessing for anything in particular. And yet, here's this young rabbi telling them, you know what, if you're feeling that you're at the absolute end of the queue, if you're in the shadows, if you're holding on by your fingernails, yours is the kingdom of God. He's teaching them that the kingdom of God is more present, more available, more imminent than they had ever been led to believe. And he goes from there, and he just doesn't let off. He just keeps going, and he keeps building this beautiful theme. And as a part of this preaching that he does, this sermon, he wants to, I think, remove a lot of religious clutter out of the way, because, my goodness, they had gathered and collected a lot of religious clutter. And so he wants to declutter their theology so that they can see God again, maybe see God for the first time. They can hear truth in a way that they'd never heard it before. They'd heard the law, but they didn't know what it meant. So controversially, Jesus starts to do this teaching. And as a young rabbi, they were allowed to interrupt him. Now, this was sort of this informal set of rules about being a rabbi. If you were a young rabbi, you could be interrupted, not in the synagogue. If you were teaching in the synagogue, everybody had to, you know, hold their tongue and then maybe talk to them later. But if you're out doing your general itinerant teaching, which a lot of rabbis did, if you were young, you could get interrupted. You could get pushed, questioned by the crowd. If you were old rabbi, you'd sort of earned your stripes, so nobody would interrupt you. They'd just let you talk. So Jesus was interrupted during the Sermon on the Mount. And part of this interruption was that somebody would probably put up their hand and say, are you trying to, get, are you trying to do away with the law and the prophets? Because he actually addresses, he answers that question as a part of his teach. Because he says, no, 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 don't think I've come to do away with the law and the prophets. And then do you remember what he says? He says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So it's an interesting word. It's an interesting phrase. What does that mean? Because the law and the prophets were the big deal for the Hebrew people. That was the centerpiece of their whole, their whole culture, the law and the prophets. Whatever they said about God, that was, that was their theology. So what does Jesus mean when He says, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets? Well, it's a great word, and the word fulfill doesn't really do it justice, because in the original Greek, um, there was, there's this sense that the Word is, is sort, of, sort of this living, churning movement. For example, if you have a fishing net, if you were, if you were part of the little fishing crew down at the Lake of Galilee, and you threw your net in the, the lake, and you pulled it in, and it was absolutely stuffed with fish, the net is fulfilling its purpose, because your net is fulfilled. The, the whole purpose of the net reaches its zenith when it is absolutely stuffed full of fish. If you were in a household back in Jesus' day, they, they often had expensive perfume for, for sacred gatherings or for special gatherings. 
Now, part of the reason was they didn't have access, they didn't have the ability for personal hygiene like we do, okay? We're all fairly well showered and watered and looking at, you know, potions and lotions. We're, we smell great, right? You come into a room, it's not really a big drama. Back then, though, it was pretty different. So if you had a whole bunch of sweaty Middle Eastern people stuffed into a room for a long night, it got pretty hard to handle sometimes. So they would crack open some perfume, intense perfume, and the perfume would fulfill the house. It would fulfill its purpose. It would fragrance everything, even spill out through the windows onto the street. That's the word that Jesus uses to say, that's what I've come to do with the law. I've come to fill it, to fragrance it, to bring life to it. If it's a net, I'm going to fill it. If it's a home, I'm going to fill it. If it's the law and the prophets, I'll fill it. With what? With His presence, with His truth, with the light of God. He says, that's what I've come to do. And then He does something that probably completely destabilizes them as well. He says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He gives them a couple of really interesting uh, sort of titles or projects to be salt and light. At which point, again, he was probably interrupted and somebody said, no, 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 no. We're not the salt. We're not the light. It's the, the law and the prophets, Moses, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, they were the salt, they were the light, they're the spiritual strong of our people. We're just normal commoners. And Jesus says, no, you're the salt, and you're the light. And then he goes on to do this teaching about the law, which is quite brilliant and a little bit unsettling. He says, okay, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not murder. So it's one of the Ten Commandments. They all knew that. You shall not murder. Then he might have asked them, because rabbis often had this dialogue with with the crowd, what does that mean? What does it mean to not murder? And somebody would probably put their hand up and say, well, it means don't kill people, rabbi. That's right. Don't kill people. But then you remember what he does? He says, you've heard that it's said, do not murder don't kill people, which is a pretty low bar for most of us, if we're honest, right? To not kill people is a fairly straightforward uh, life plan. But then he says, you've heard that it said, don't murder. Then he says, but I say to you, I say to you, and then he says, don't even kill them with your words. In fact, Your thoughts are a weapon that you use to kill people. So what's he doing here? He's just raised the bar a long, long way up, hasn't he? From don't actually kill people to your words and your thoughts matter. Everything counts. Then he says, you've heard that it said, don't commit adultery. What does that mean? Same brave guy puts his hand up. Well, Rabbi, it means don't wake up in the wrong bed. <laughs> he says, that's right. Don't do that. 
But I say to you, don't even think about the wrong bed. Don't even let your imagination take that little trip. Because in your mind, you're an adulterer. Oh my goodness, what's he just done? He's taken don't wake up in the wrong bed, which again, hopefully is a fairly straightforward you know, set rules of engagement. To whatever is going on in your imagination, you're to look, with e- look at each other with esteem, integrity, honor, dignity. Wow. So, he's, see what he's doing with the law? He's fulfilling it. He's taking something that was basic and stale, and he's now putting it right into the center of who they are as people, their imagination, their minds, their motives, their words, their thoughts, their appetites. Wow. He is fulfilling the law right before our eyes through this extraordinary movement called the Sermon on the Mount. And he keeps going, and he covers a lot of ground, and he moves to different subjects. And I think, my personal opinion is, I think he moves to a lot of subjects because he keeps getting interrupted. But what about this, Rabbi? What about this? Ah, but what about that? And you can see him almost move with this logical response to the crowd as he's walking his way through. Well, this then is how you should pray. Because somebody probably brought up prayer. Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 has what we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. But it's embedded right in the middle of this intense, controversial sermon. I think we might have it on the screen. Matthew 6, verse 7. He says, This then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, if you're used to praying that in school, you would then have, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's sort of landing stanza to the Lord's Prayer, but it's not actually in the Bible. Some clever people wrote it a long time ago to give us a nice little doxology to land on. It's not wrong. It's just not in the text. So, we'll just stick with the text this morning. So, the kingdom of God, if we can leave that up, that'd that'd be grand. Thanks. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Our Father, well, who's he talking to? He's teaching the crowd to address God the Father. Now, <clears throat> for us, this can be a bit of a challenge. When you pray, what do you imagine? When you're praying to God, when you say, Our Father, what do you imagine God to be like? Because whatever is going on in your head, When you pray and you think about God, that is incredibly important. That is your theology. And whatever your theology is, is a big deal. Bad theology, when it is lived out, will almost always have bad results. Good theology, when it's lived out, will have good results. 
Jesus, I think, wants us to understand from his place good theology. So what's going on in our minds when we imagine God, when we say our Father, who and what are we imagining? One of the problems and challenges that we have in the modern Western church is that our imaginations have been somewhat hijacked by Renaissance art. Now, Renaissance art, you might not be very familiar with it, but you know what it is. Renaissance art is the image of God that was created by these phenomenal artists in the 14-1500s, mostly Italians, and they painted God, and they were sincere, and they tried their best. They weren't, you know, they weren't trying to dis, uh, disorient the church. They were trying to do a rep- representation, but it was not, uh, it wasn't helpful. Their representation of God is a white, slightly older than middle-aged European man with a long white beard and a muscular torso, somewhere in the clouds in the heavens, normally wearing a toga, blue-eyed, sort of severe but kind, you know, aloof but approachable perhaps. If you go onto Google and you push God, you type in God, and then you press images, you will get dozens of versions of that, and it's Renaissance art, and it has saturated the modern imagination to help us or hinder us from understanding what God is like. So if that's your imagination of God or some sort of version of that, try really hard to let that blow away like chaff, because it's not good theology. Why? Because God is not a slightly older than middle-aged European man with a long white beard and a muscular torso, who wears a toga and abides in the clouds. Okay, if that's not what God's like, what is God like? Well, this is the beautiful challenge of the church. One of the challenges of the church is to try and articulate to each other who is God. Who is this one we worship and believe in? God is spirit. Jesus tells us that in John chapter 4. God is eternal. God is infinite. He is non-corporeal, which means He has no physical body in the way that we understand physical bodies. He is not bound by matter in the way that we are bound by matter. He is non-temporal, which means He is not bound by time in the way that we are bound by time. Time is in God. God is not in time. God is not subject to it like we are. So even this morning I was reading Psalm 90, and it talks about how God is from everlasting to everlasting. There's a completely different set of rules that applies to God that applies to the rest of us, because He's God and we're not. He is creator. We are created. God contains the cosmos. He is not somewhere located in it. Everything is in Him. We're told that again and again and again through Paul's theology. In Christ, in God, in the Spirit, God is sublime and irrepressible love and power and wisdom and beauty and oh so much more. So how can we begin to imagine such a God? This is the challenge of the church. How do we, how do we begin to put that into our thoughts, our words? Well, this is where the gospel is so magnificent and important. Jesus embodies God. If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus. We listen to Him. 
For all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. Jesus is the embodiment of God. He is not the Father, He is the Son, and He is not the Spirit, He is the Son. So there's this mystery called the Trinity. We won't go too far into that this morning. But again, that's one of the tasks of the church. How do we continue to have this conversation in a healthy and accurate and growing and and proper way to nourish ourselves with the truth of God? This prayer is prayed to the Father, the Father who is unseen, and yet the Son stands right before them, and He says, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, how does that happen? How does the kingdom of God come to earth? How does the kingdom, how is God's will done on earth like it is in heaven? Well, more than ever, the church has this, again, a slightly caricatured idea. The kingdom comes and God's will is done by sort of a sense of sweeping revival often, or great power encounters, or explosive events. We have this idea that that's how the best stuff in the church happens with the big electric explosions of the Spirit. I'd probably counter that, to be honest, and to say, well, I'm not so sure that's how this really goes. I think God's kingdom comes, and I think His will is done most often through the everyday moments of love and obedience by God's people. When you live faithfully and kindly and sweetly, generously and bravely in your community, that is how the kingdom of God comes. That is how God's will is done. He was speaking, wasn't he, to a group of people on the hillside, and they were just the regular folk. They were the farmers and the fishermen and the mechanics and the, the, you know, the marketeers of the day. And so he wasn't talking to them about explosive revivals. He was talking to them about faithful moments of obedience. How do you think about the other? How do you speak to the other? How do you treat each other? That's the mundane but profound beauty of the kingdom of God. When God's will is done and His kingdom comes… Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't sometimes revive and do beautiful and unexplainable things. But the vast majority of good Christian work throughout history has been done by faithful people through the little things, hasn't it? Moments of grace, us living simply. So the kingdom of God is made up of all these multiple humble choices that we can each make. Where does Jesus go next? Hallowed be your name. So revered in heaven, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then he, then he makes it really earthy. Give us this day our daily bread. Bread for them was the most necessary daily part of their diet. They were bread culture. But it becomes, when we understand food, it becomes a source of delight, not because it's delicious, but because it's a grace. I think, to be honest, the wonder of farming and the wonder of food is lost on most of us. Agriculture is a miracle. Now, we live in the Okanagan Valley, so we are surrounded by some different forms of bounty in agriculture. 
But I think it's good for us to be reminded and to remind each other, this is, this is an amazing gift from God. Last year, I accidentally became a pig farmer. My son wanted to start a business, and we've got a little acreage up towards Silver Star Mountain in Vernon, and his business was fine meats. So what, he's this kind of guy. What was a little idea became a really big idea really fast. He's ambitious. He's young. He's capable. <laughs> and his dad's got an acreage. So he's like, hey, Dad, I want to start a business. I'm like, all right, man. We're all in for a whole year, whatever it is, whatever it takes, we'll sign off on it. Let's do this. What do you need to start your business? I want to raise some pigs. Okay, how many pigs? We started off at 12, and then it was 20. We ended up with 44. I don't know if you understand how much damage 44 pigs can do to a five-acre parcel. It's pretty significant. Feels irreparable. Anyway, it's a lot of work. Raising animals, keeping them healthy, dealing with them, processing them, all the nice meats that come out of it, the bacons and the hams, and it, it is a ton of work. And we've done chickens too. Chickens are annoying and smelly and terrible. They taste good, but they are a lot of work too. Food is a lot of work. But for most of us, we don't even understand really that, to be honest. Some of you may have grown up on farms and you know the acreage life and farming culture. I grew up in industrial Glasgow. I didn't, I didn't have a clue about this when I was growing up. We're looked after by things called grocery stores now. And I'll, I'll say this in all seriousness. We eat like kings. We are a generation that eats stuff that other people could only imagine. We can go into a grocery store or a speciality store. We can buy delicacies from any corner of the world, and it's not even that expensive. We can get delights that only kings could get a few generations ago, and it's just right there at our fingertips. Just grab it, scan it, off you go. We actually eat like kings. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. My goodness, we have got so much to be thankful for. A little while ago, we were talking to our kids, and uh, one of them prayed during, before the prayer, uh, before meal, they said grace, and they prayed, Lord, bless the hands that prepared the food. So we talked about that during our dinner. How many sets of hands do you think have been employed to put the food on the plate that we're eating tonight? And so we had fish from somewhere, and we had potatoes from somewhere, and we had salad from somewhere, and there was fruit, and there was sauces, and there was spices. You could cover the whole planet with one pretty ordinary family meal. And you could probably count hundreds of people who have worked hard to put the food on your table and in your fridge. Lord, give us this day our daily bread. We have got a lot to be thankful for and to look out for those who aren't maybe as fortunate as we are, and to try and put food on their table and make sure they get their daily bread. Ultimately, it is all a tremendous grace from God. Give us today our daily bread.
Beautiful. And then Jesus sort of slices right into something so important and so hard for the people of the day to understand. What does he say next? Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. Lord, please cancel the sins that are against me, and I will cancel the sins of those who sin against me. At this point, somebody in the crowd probably went, hang on, hang on, hang on, time out, time out. You can't say that, Rabbi. You can't just pray to God, forgive us our sins. And Jesus might have said, well, why not? Well, because everybody knows God doesn't just forgive sins. You've got to wait. You've got to wait for the Day of Atonement. And on Yom Kippur, you have to take your journey with your family and your community to the temple. You have to travel to Jerusalem, the city. You have to ascend the hill to the temple. You have to bring your offering. You have to say the right prayers. You have to agree with the priestly benedictions. You have to be there when they sacrifice the animals and when the sacred blood is put upon the altar and upon the steps and even upon some of the people who are at the front row. And when we're prayed for, and when the goat is killed, and when the goat is released, and when they do these elaborate sacrificial ceremonial activities, then, and only then, can we ask for God's forgiveness. You can't just stroll up to God and ask for grace. You see what Jesus just did? What I just explained was there. That was how it worked. Their atonement, the grace of God, was available to them, but on a very strict, very strict terms and conditions. So, Jesus actually circumvents the whole clutter, and He introduces them to the new way. He introduced them to the new covenant, actually, before they even knew what it was. And He says, just forgive us our sins. It's not about being at the right place at the right time and having the right people do the right stuff on your behalf. It's about your heart. It's about your soul and your spirit. It's about repentance and having a contrite posture before God just to say, okay, I'm in. I'm sorry. And as best I can when people are against me, I'll try and be gracious to them as you've been gracious to me. And Jesus totally reconstructs the architecture of their theology from being something that was located in a certain place and dependent on certain people. Now it is in spirit and in truth. It's beautiful. And then lead us not into temptation. A better rendering of that is lead us away from temptation. Because lead us not into sounds like if we didn't ask God to, He would, you know. So, a better translation is, lead us away from temptation and deliver us from the evil one. What is temptation? What is temptation? Well, temptation comes in all shapes and sizes, all kinds of tricky disguises, for all sorts of complex reasons. 
But when you boil down all of those complicated ingredients, temptation can be, I think, summarized as a single moment of decision. A single moment of decision when you are standing in front of two different doors. Every moment of temptation can be broken down to this single thought. You're standing in front of two doors. No matter what your temptation is, it applies. And one door is to follow the appetite of your flesh or the desire to do your own thing, to walk away from God, walk in the power of self. That's one door. That's one option. Your other option is to deny that and to take the, the door of God's will, of obedience, of faith, of humility, of sacrifice. That's what temptation is. It's, it's a single moment when we have to make that decision. Now, having to make that decision is not wrong. Having to make that decision is not even sinful. Having to make that decision just means that you're a human being. Because Jesus had to make that decision regularly. We're told that He was tempted in every way as we are. Now, the Bible isn't bluffing when it says that. It wasn't just saying it to make us feel good, but it didn't really apply to Jesus because Jesus was divine. Jesus was also fully human. And being fully human means that every single day we get to stand in front of two doors frequently. And we have to make split-second choices. My way, God's way. My way, God's way. That's it. That's what it comes down to. And Jesus had to make that decision, and we're told that every single time He had to make that decision, He chose the right door. So, when Jesus says things like, follow me, we can apply even to that analogy. Follow me through the right door every single time. And here's the thing as well, is that the more we walk through the right door, the better we get at it. The more those muscles, those inner muscles of faith and belief and conviction and obedience are exercised and they grow and they become stronger and brighter, and we, the, the, the right door, the good door becomes our natural choice. And the other door seems to lose its appeal. So deliver us, lead us not into temptation, but when we're there, make that choice. Deliver us from the evil one. Because it's not just, here's the here's this mysterious part, it's not just our own inner appetites we're fighting against. There's some supernatural component to this. Where the spiritual powers that are against God and His people will be singing their song from behind that door and from behind our ear to try and go through the wrong one. Just once, just twice. No, no, no. doesn't matter. It's not a big deal. So, there's this sense of, God, deliver me from that too. Whoever those voices are trying to whisper, whoever lies they're telling, would you silence them and just allow me to hear your Spirit and to go through the right door? 
So there's the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, this mysterious, beautiful, spiritual, eternal, holy one, utterly other, completely other than whatever we are, and yet knows who we are, transcendent and imminent. Your kingdom come, maybe by thunder and lightning, but most often just by gentle rain, just by simple obedience, love and faith, the people of God looking after each other, looking after their community. Thank you for our food, because it's amazing, and it's abundant, and it's extraordinary. And forgive us. Forgive us our sins, not by jumping through all kinds of difficult, you know, clerical hoops, but simply by opening our heart and having a heart open to others. And when we stand in front of those doors of temptation, Lord, give us the faith and the resilience to keep choosing the right one. Father, we ask that you would grant us the faith that we need to be hearers, and not just hearers, but doers of your word. That your Holy Spirit would give us ears to hear what it is that you are saying to the church, this church. What you are saying to Keith what you're saying to the elders board, what you're saying to the leadership teams, what you're saying to just the everyday folks that we're here amongst, what you're saying to the children. Give us ears to hear whatever it is you're saying. For yours is the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen.